Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. Make some noise if you're ready to hit the beach. Are you ready, Liquid? We're very excited about this. May 31st is coming up very soon, and we are headed down to Ocean Grove. This is history-making uh, uh, day uh, for the church early because we've never had all four of our campuses together under one roof. So Mountainside, Nutley, New Brunswick, join everybody in Morristown. We're all going to hit the beach together for really kind of the mother of all worship celebrations. Uh, it's going to be an epic day of fun. There is going to be sun. We've already prayed and claimed it in Jesus' name. There's going to be sun, okay, you know, and I hope your entire family can make it. Um, before I introduce today's speaker, I want to spotlight really three things you need to know about May 31st. The first thing is this. The service begins at 11 a.m. and is the only service in New Jersey that Liquid is having. We are canceling. Typically every Sunday, we have 11 worship services around the state. We're canceling all those services to bring everybody under one roof at 11 a.m. Now, that means don't show up at your campus. If you do, you're going to be alone, and it will be awkward, okay? So hop in the car. Ocean Grove is about one hour from just about all points north, right next to Asbury Park. And we're going to be in the 6,000-seat Great auditorium. It's incredible. Built in 1894. Uh, evangelists like Billy Sunday and Billy Graham have preached there. We're going to have special music. I'm going to give you a message with some big news about the future of Liquid Church. So don't miss it. But try to arrive by 1030. Here's why. Parking in Ocean Grove is very, very tight, okay? And we're going to have a team out there who will help you find a spot. But you need to get there around 1030. And then we'll direct you to the great auditorium for the service that begins at 11 a.m. Uh, after the service, we're going to actually head outside. We're going to have a, kind of a, a picnic lunch uh, out on the green there. And there are really only two options for lunch, okay? So the first is pack the family cooler. Okay, you get sandwiches and drinks. Bring your own lunch. But the second is for you to pre-order for lunch when you get your free tickets at liquidchurch.com. The lunches that we're um, selling, these are prepaid lunches, are from Jersey Mike's Sub. So you're going to be eating some good uh, grinders there. And we're emphasizing this because we want you to know there is no place to purchase lunch on site there, okay, on Sunday. So if you're already registered but you forgot to order lunch, no problem. Just email us, info at liquidchurch.com. We will hook you up with subs, okay? Then after lunch, a half hour after lunch, we're hosting beach baptisms. Well, wait a half hour for you to digest. But I really hope many of you are going to take this next step in your relationship with Christ because if you're a Christian but you've never been baptized, this is your chance. We're baptizing people, both kids and adults, in the Atlantic Ocean. And I want to let you know, I was down there this week. I actually st stuck my toe in the water. And good news, it is an invigorating 55 degrees. <laughs> if, you, if you need a spiritual wake-up call, this is your moment, okay? All of our pastors are going to be wearing wetsuits. That's actually true. And uh, we'll provide everything you need, you know, towels, all that. You just bring your flip-flops. You bring your bathing suit, okay? The reason we do um, uh, baptism, water baptism, is not only because Jesus commanded it, but he actually modeled it for us. It's very interesting. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. Uh, Matthew 3.13 says this. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, that's the river, to be baptized by John. So he's in a river. You're going to be in the ocean. And it's interesting because the early Christians were told, follow Jesus' example by water immersion. 
In Acts uh, 10.48, Peter says this. It says he commanded the Christians, the early Christians, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So what happens is we baptize by immersion. What that means is when you go under the water, you're identifying with the death and the burial of Jesus. Okay, You're saying, I'm a follower of Jesus, being buried like he is. But then when you're raised up out of the water, you're demonstrating his resurrection to new life, washed clean of, of sin, filled with the Holy Spirit. So if you're a Christian, or, or even if you're, if you're a new believer or a long-time believer, and you've just never been baptized, what are you waiting for? This is like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be baptized in the Jersey Shore. I mean, isn't Jesus synonymous with the Jersey Shore? Perfect together, right? I'm going to encourage you today, if you're interested, to grab a baptism bag in the lobby at your campus. It has all the information you need. You do have to sign up. That's important. So go to liquidchurch.com. You'll get all your information uh, there. And then finally... Uh, I, we need hundreds of volunteers to make this day a success. And as your pastor, I'm asking you, can you help for even one or two hours before or after the main service? Uh, as you heard, we actually need help on the parking team to help new guests find a place to park and then just point them and say, that's where we're going, the great auditorium. And then when the service starts, you just simply go in and enjoy the service with your family. So understand you won't miss the main service if you volunteer. And then afterwards, we need people to help distribute lunch because they're going to be feeding, you know, feeding of the 5,000 kind of thing. We actually need people to hand out subs. It's a modern-day feeding, okay? Uh, so if you can do that, same thing. You'll enjoy the service with your family or friends, and then afterwards you'll just help out when we have a party on the green, handing out lunches, making sure everybody's having a good time. And here's the deal. Today, today only, if you volunteer at liquidchurch.com, I will personally buy you lunch. I will buy your sub that day, all right? So that's my little bribery to you because I know you're spiritual. Okay, you guys excited for the beach? Are you ready? May 31st, I hope that you will be there for Liquid at the Shore. Well, today we are hosting a special guest for week two of our series, ISIS, Islam, and Jesus. And last week, pretty eye-opening, uh, we learned about the systematic persecution of Christian believers that is happening right now today in modern-day Iraq and Syria. And according to Johnny Moore, he is author of the book Defying ISIS, Preserving Christianity in the Place of Its Birth, and in Your Own Backyard, a Christian Genocide is underway in the Middle East. I understand that's an alarmist word, but it's not alarmist. This is what is happening, a genocide in the birthplace of Christianity. Uh, the radical Islamic terror group known as ISIS is beheading believers, they are enslaving women and children and destroying churches in plain sight, really waging war against people of the cross. That's what they call Christians or followers of Jesus. And their goal is very simple. It is to wipe Christianity off the map from the place of its birth in the Middle East and then advance to Europe and eventually to our own backyard here in America. So this is a global crisis afflicting not only Christians but Jews and the majority of the world's over one billion Muslims who do not agree with ISIS's to toxic ideology. But today, our focus is on the Middle East and specifically the persecuted church. How can we, as Christians in the West, help? How can we encourage? How can we support? How can we pray for our brothers and sisters in Iraq and Syria who are being persecuted and displaced by the hundreds of thousands? This is a humanitarian crisis of global proportion. As Christians, we need to speak up. Uh, as I mentioned last week, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is the German pastor who stood up to the Nazis in World War II, he famously said that silence in the face of evil is itself evil. 
And so we must speak up as the church in the West on behalf of the church in the East. We must speak boldly and with moral clarity in our generation. And that's exactly what Johnny Moore is doing. Johnny is not only an author, he is a humanitarian and pastor whose adventures have taken him to over two dozen nations. He's worked with genocide victims in Bosnia and Rwanda. He has visited the world's largest refugee camps on the borders of Jordan and Syria and actually witnessed over 2,000 Asian Christians take a martyr's oath before receiving their college diploma. He is rapidly becoming one of America's leading spokespersons for the persecuted church. And today, he has focused on providing immediate assistance to the hundreds of thousands of displaced Christian refugees in Iraq and Syria, including the Yazidis and other religious minorities through the Cradle Fund. Johnny is a former senior vice president of Liberty University and currently serves as chief of staff for Mark Burnett. He is the producer that you probably know, created the Bible TV miniseries, Son of God, and the current one airing A.D., so he has worked with almost every major news outlet, including CNN, the Washington Post, and Fox News, which he appeared on last night in New York City. And so we are honored to host him today at Liquid. Would you give a big old Liquid welcome to Johnny Moore? We're grateful for you, Johnny. Thank you, my friend. You're a gift to be here today for us. Thank you. Well, I... I would much actually rather be uh, here today speaking about something less serious, but um, we don't have the benefit sometimes of choosing what we want to focus on. And at this particular moment in history, we're witnessing uh, something of, of great historic consequence. And Christianity isn't on the peripheral of that issue. It is at the very, very heart and soul of it. And you know, the fact is, is that the church really hasn't been at the heart and soul of the solution. There are very, very few churches in the United States of America that have done what Liquid is doing. And, and I, I just want to begin, before I dive into what I'm going to share with you today, uh, by thanking Liquid Church and Tim and all the leadership here for shining a light on what is one of the most significant crises, not only of our time, but of all time, and a crisis affecting our brothers and sisters in Christ at a moment where they often feel uh, forgotten. And so this is an amazing, amazing church whose reputation goes before it. When I was at Liberty, we knew about Liquid Church. We knew what was happening here. Uh, and, and I just count it an unbelievable uh, privilege uh, to be here uh, today. And perhaps next time, you know, when I, I come, I'll, I'll talk about something a little less serious. And perhaps by that time, we will have all been a part of the solution in a really, really significant way. You know, what's funny is my invitation to, to be involved with the crisis against Christians in Iraq and Syria didn't come at the invitation of Christians. It actually came at the invitation of a Muslim king, the king of Jordan. Uh, he had convened a meeting in Amman, and those in the meeting included three Catholic cardinals, five Orthodox patriarchs, and a number of evangelical leaders like Rick Warren, and I, I happened to be there as well. And the subject of the meeting convened by the Islamic king of Jordan, in a, the Islamic kingdom of Jordan, was the the Christian populations of Iraq and Syria that were facing the threat of severe persecution and eradication. And so there I was in a meeting convened by Muslims to introduce Christians to the problem that was, that was inflicting their brethren apart, uh, in that part of the world. And I thought it was an incredibly ironic experience. I wasn't in a meeting convened by Christians. I was in a meeting convened by Muslims because they were concerned about Christians who were facing an extreme form of Islamic ideology that these Muslims themselves were facing, which you know, we, we often call them moderate Muslims. I just call them normal Muslims. And 
that was a full year before ISIS made their infamous march through Iraq and Syria, taking, eventually culminating in taking Mosul and other cities, so that while we're here today, ISIS, in effect, controls one contiguous piece of land that's larger than the United Kingdom between Iraq and Syria. They also, in effect, control Libya. They, in effect, control the northeast of Nigeria. They control pockets in Egypt and in Kenya. And while al-Shabaab hasn't pledged allegiance to ISIS, they celebrate the same type of ideology in Somalia. And I think, it's, I think it's a really, really poignant thing that a year before that infamous march was happening in Iraq and Syria, these Christians from Iraq and Syria were in a meeting begging and pleading for the world to pay attention. And they were describing exactly what would happen. They described the cities it would happen in. They described the actors that would be responsible for it. And they were begging and pleading and screaming. And the world didn't pay attention. And here we are. Now, my, my involvement significantly amp- amplified itself this fall when, when I was uh, uh, actually attending a dinner with the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors in, in Beverly Hills. I'm sitting at this table with these grandchildren of Holocaust survivors, and they were, they were talking about their own experience and how the Holocaust is a very, very important part of their, their sort of life story because, because if their grandparents wouldn't have survived the Holocaust, they wouldn't, not only would they not have the careers and the children and the life that they have, they wouldn't even be there today. And so we're sitting around this table talking about the Holocaust, and then that night I go home from that dinner, and I open up my inbox, and inside of my inbox I had an email from a pastor in Syria. And the email subject line was awaiting death. And here's what the email said. I'll read it to you. It said, I'm here in my room sitting in darkness because we now only receive one hour of electricity per day. It's around midnight. I'm waiting here with others in my building as we play hide and seek with death. As I write, another two mortars just fell on the building in front of us and another on the building to the right and another on the building on the next street over. So far, we've been spared, but are we next? When will it be our turn, he wrote. Should I just stay in my bed so that I'll die in peace? Or should I go to the ground floor of the building so that I might be able to escape? But how long should I stay here? Should should I try and sleep or is it better to stay awake and feel the moment when ISIS, Dash, he wrote, because that's what they called him, Middle East. Should, should I just stay awake to fill the moment when death comes riding in on one of those mortars? Wow. Just now, it finally hit us. Shaking this big building I'm living in, the windows pushed out violently, and I can hear the horrifying screams from everywhere all around me. Yet except for the flash of light when the mortar hit, there are no lights. I don't even know what's going on. I can't even see what's going on. I can only hear the screams. I think I've decided it's better to stay here in my room and await death. Another mortar just hit. I'm just going to be quiet. And when I, I read that note, that email sent to me, I, you know, I felt like I was reading the diary of Anne Frank in sort of, sort of the 21st century. This man, as he, as he sort of live tweeted you know, via email, I guess, you know, his experiences, the mortars hit and all the stuff was happening. And, and this, was, this was a pastor, which the Bible tells me that if one member of the body of Christ suffers, everyone suffers. Like, this is my brother in Christ. That's who this person is. He's a part of my family. 
And, you know, America is a very patriotic country, right? I mean, we, we, we celebrate our armed forces. We're proud to be Americans. And if I would have come up on this stage, and this were like a patriotic Sunday. We were, we were celebrating Veterans Day or something. And I, I walked on this stage, and I told you that my brother or my father had died in Iraq, in the Iraq War, a, a, a sweeping feeling of emotion would come up across this American crowd, right? Our patriotism would cause tears to form in our eyes. We'd feel moved on a deep and emotional level that a soldier of the army of the United States of America and, and a relative of mine, nonetheless, had died in service to our freedom. And yet that's exactly what is happening to our brothers and sisters in Christ every single day in Iraq and Syria and in other nations of the world. And we're not nearly as deeply affected by it. And, and I don't think that we should be affected by one or the other, but I think that we should be affected both by both in deep and profound ways. Like what if that was your father or your mother or your uncle or brother or sister or son or daughter that was writing you that email as the terrorists move in, as the mortars fell? See, a lot of people, they, they wonder what is happening in in Iraq and Syria. And, and last week, Tim did a masterful job of summarizing for you the crisis of the really horrible things that are happening. But what people don't, I think, understand on a profound level is how, how deep Christianity is rooted in this part of the world. See, Iraq is the country from which Abraham came. When, when you study in, in, in Sunday school class or in your, in your home, when, you're, when your parents teach you about Scripture, you discover that, that, that Christians believe that God created everything between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. That's Iraq. That's where God started it all. When, when Jonah went to preach in Nineveh, he was preaching in a city called, that we call Mosul today. When Paul was converted, he was converted on the road to Damascus. Christians were first called Christians in Syria, the Christian population of Iraq and Syria is not a new phenomenon. This is the, these are the first Christians. It was the Apostle Thomas that preached the gospel in Iraq. These ancient Assyrian and Chaldean Christian populations go back 2,000 years. They're the first Christians in that part of the world. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and they have survived 2,000 years in some of the most deplorable conditions you can possibly imagine, and yet in the 21st century, they may not survive their threat of eradication. In Mosul today, there are zero Christians, not one. In fact, in the entire, entire Nineveh plain, for that matter, the only Christians left in the Nineveh plain are those being held hostage while we sit here in the comfort and security of our safe and religiously free nation. There are brothers and sisters in Christ every single day that are facing the threat of eradication. And it is our not, not pleasure to help them. It is our responsibility to help them. The Bible compels us to help these people. These are our brothers and our sisters. And by the way, it's not unintentional that all of this is happening. We're seeing 20, in the 21st century, we're seeing first century persecution. We have not seen persecution like this in some circumstances since the first century of Christianity. You know, in Syria, there were 2 million Christians. 2 million Christians. In Egypt, there were 8 million Christians. There, in Egypt, the ancient Christian population... It has, has thrived for centuries and centuries, for thousands of years, these Coptic Christians, uh, alongside Muslims, alongside ruler after ruler after ruler. And yet in the last two years, they've seen more persecution against Christians, their community in Egypt, than in the previous 600 years combined in the 21st century, in the modern world, in our world. 
These are very serious times. These are times when the world must pay attention. These are times when we don't have the luxury of being quiet. These are times where we have to understand that the Bible not only compels us to speak up and to provide for our brothers and sisters in Christ that are being persecuted, but it's actually just the right thing to do. This is what Christians do. Our conscience ought to compel us to act. I mean, I have, I have the price list for the slave market in Mosul, and the slaves on the slave market in Mosul are listed by age and by religion. A Christian or Yazidi girl between one and nine years old for 170 U.S. dollars. A 50-year-old Christian or Yazidi woman on sale for 50 U.S. dollars. You know, the big news in the United States of America is that you know, just yesterday the United States was part of a raid and they went in and they, you know, they, they killed a, a you know, ISIS operative, and actually a mid-level operative. You would think from the news it was Bin Laden, a very important figure, but not you know, a senior figure. But, but this guy had an 18-year-old Yazidi slave inside of his house, and she wasn't cooking and cleaning. In one moment, in one moment, 5,000 Yazidi women were put on a slave market this fall in Iraq. This is happening in our modern time. You know, we're, we're living in a, in a, in a time period where you know, there used to be one failed country in the world. It was Somalia, one failed country in the world. And Iraq and Afghanistan were improving. But now we're living in a time where Iraq and Afghanistan are going in the wrong direction. Somalia remains a failed state, and you can add to it Yemen, the northeast of Nigeria, Libya. This is an incredibly perilous time. And at the heart of all of this is a single thing. It's a single thing. And it by no means is representative of the, of the majority of Muslims around the world. By no means is it. In fact, it's an enemy of both Muslims and of Christians. Yet it's being incubated and it's growing again and again and again. And we have an obligation to speak up for these people in harm's way. But we know what's happening. I mean, between this week and between last week, you know what's happening. But, but why does it matter, I think, to our lives? And the first thing, I think, is that the scripture is very, very clear as Christians why it matters to us. No, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3. Here's what it says. It says, remember the Lord's people who are in jail and be concerned for them. Don't forget those who are suffering, but imagine that you are there with them. Remember the Lord's people who are in jail and be concerned for them. Don't forget those who are suffering, but imagine that you are there with them. That's what the Bible says we ought to be doing on behalf of these people. Now, that word remember, th this is a word used for like not, not just remembering something that happened. It's to put yourself in the shoes of those that are suffering. It's, it's an empathetic remembrance. It's to, it's to be in the heart of their problem. It's to imagine that that was, that was your relative that was killed or enslaved. It's to imagine that your city was the city being bombarded. It's to imagine that your church that had thrived for 2,000 years, monasteries and churches that have been standing for hundreds and hundreds of years have been leveled to the ground. That's my church. You know, in the United States of America, in the South, you have these family churches, right? I, you know, I grew up in it, and, and grandma sits on the front row like her three generations before sat on the front row. That's my church. And imagine they came in and just put it to smithereens. Like he says, remember in an empathetic way. Put yourself in the shoes of these people. Remember those who are in jail as if you were in jail with them. And by the way, when he writes jail in, in the book of Hebrews, th this isn't jail like in the United States of America. 
okay? This isn't, the United States of America believes in its heart, in its DNA, in the in inherent dignity of every human being. And so even when you go into jails in this country, you still get treated a certain way. I, I happen to know, and not because I've been in jail for, for a bad reason, but because when I was a kid, they took me on a, on a field trip to a maximum security prison in South Carolina. I'm not sure why. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine doing this to like a, I don't remember how old I was, like a seventh grade kid? You know, they're trying to scare me to death. And I had a particular problem because I used to be a magician. And w when I was a kid, I did magic tricks, and I accidentally swallowed a coin. I had a coin inside my stomach, so I set off the metal detector when I went inside. And so I was even more terrified when I went inside this prison. But you know what I noticed when I went in this maximum security prison is that there were cafeterias, and you know, it was very, very difficult. It was, it was absolute punishment. But there were televisions and cafeterias and private rooms, and people were treated in a certain way. That's not how a Roman prison was 2,000 years ago. In fact, just three weeks ago, I was in Rome, and on my, my morning that I was leaving, I decided to go to the Mamertine prison where Peter and Paul were in prison to have, just pray for the persecuted church. And so I go inside the Mamertine prison, and now they've built a stairway that goes underneath it. But at that time, and you can still see it, there was no stairway. There was like a sewer hole. And they would drop you down into this hole, into this dark and disgusting environment. It smelled like something you have never smelled before. You, there was no bathroom down in there. You just made do. They put you on a short leash. That's where we get the phrase, a short leash. They put somebody on a short leash. So you'd be chained to the floor. You'd get whatever food somebody brought and threw down the hole. And then you just kind of had to go to the bathroom where you were. It wasn't meant for you to survive. It was meant to expedite your death. And 2,000 years ago, when this letter, this love letter to the church of Jesus Christ was written, he was writing to people that were in that prison. And they weren't in a prison because they had committed a crime. They were in a prison because they loved Jesus Christ. That was their only crime. And the writer of Hebrews says, like, put yourself in their shoes. Be concerned for their suffering. That word suffering is the most intense word in the Greek language for suffering. It's only used here and in one other place in all of the New Testament. And it's in, it's in this same book. It's used in Hebrews 11, verse 37, where it says, They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were put to death with the sword, they went about destitute, afflicted, and suffering. This type of suffering was the unbearable suffering. The best way of describing it is it's like being in a personal hell. That's the best way to describe the world. So, so the writer of Hebrews says, right now, while you're living in the comfort of your own home, believers, not all of them, but many of them, what I have to tell you is you have brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're like in a kennel. We get the word kennel, like dog kennel, from the Greek word for the Roman prison. They're like in a kennel, living in their, their, their excrement, being fed whatever food that they, that they get, marching on their way to beheading at the hands of Rome. That's what's happening to these people. They're suffering a personal hell, and you need to remember them and be concerned for them like you were there with them. I just have to ask, like, is that true of us today? Like, while we sit in this room, in beautiful America, safe America, with law enforcement protecting in every corner of this country, are we as concerned for our brothers and sisters of Christ whose only crime is they love Jesus and who were just unfortunate enough to be born 
in a dangerous place. When I was in Iraq uh, this fall, I, I met this uh, amazing nun. I, in my book, I call her Sister Rose. I use a pseudonym, but, but her name is Sister Diana. And I, I say her name now because now she's uh, quite, quite well known. Um, she, she's quite well known because we were trying to bring her to testify to Congress last week. And uh, the State Department denied her visa. And, and I caused a, a big issue with Democrats and Republicans putting enormous pressure on the State Department to give her a visa. It was just an incomprehensible thing that happened. And she made it here last week, and she testified to Congress. And when I met her in Iraq, she was taking care of thousands of Christians and Muslims and Yazidis, everyone, regardless of their creed or their religion, regardless of their ethnicity, Kakais and Mendians, Shabbat, a beautiful sign of the love of God and a, a, a sign of the best of faith in the face of the worst of religion. And I met with her. She, I was sitting in, in her makeshift convent. She's now living in sort of a rented house in, in northern Iraq because she's been twice run out of cities. She was run out of Mosul in 2009 when terrorists, the early incarnation of ISIS. ISIS is not a new organization. They've been around for a long time. In fact, Baghdadi is not a new leader. He took charge of ISIS in May of 2010. In October of 2010, he bombed his first church. Uh, he, he attacked his first church, and 50 Christians died, and 70 others were injured. It's not new. But she was first run out in two, 2009 from their monastery that had been there for centuries. And then she moved to a city called Katakosh. And this summer, ISIS moved into Katakosh. And she was part of the 50,000 Christians who in one night lost everything. And they went, th those that survived, not everyone survived. In fact, one of those that we don't know whether she survived or not was a little three-year-old girl named Christina. It was her parents' only child. I had her parents interviewed. I have the video documenting her parents as they talked about how ISIS put husband, wife, and three-year-old daughter on a bus, took them outside of the city, kicked the parents off the bus, took the three-year-old daughter as the mom screamed at the top of her lungs. We have no idea what happened to that daughter. But Sister Diana was among that group of 50,000 that had to leave in, the, in a blink of an eye. And so I was meeting with her in Iraq because we, take, we helped take care of her through the Cradle Fund. And she told me, she said, you know, Americans... You're beautiful people. It's a wonderful country. I lived there for six or seven years. I don't remember. I have a doctorate from American University. She said, you take care of your pets so well. Can you care for your Christian brothers and sisters who are suffering? It's shocking to me that you are so silent in the face of our genocide. You know, I told Sister Diana that day in, in Iraq, I said, trust me, Americans are better than this, and the church is better than this. It's just that they don't know. But I'm going to go back, and I'm going to tell them, and I'm going to tell them until I lose my voice. And, and we're going to let the church know, and I trust me, Americans will step up. They'll take care of you, and the church of Jesus Christ will take care of you because there are 2 billion people on planet Earth that claim to follow Jesus Christ. There are 2 billion people on planet Earth that claim to be a part of the Christian church, and there are only about 150,000 probably Christians left in Iraq. Surely we can handle this. And you know, every single day I wonder if I made myself a liar when I made that statement as I watch Christian after Christian so busy with other things to be not engaged in this crisis. 
the Bible compels us. We have to act. Like it's, it tells us we have to act. By the way, if, if our compassion doesn't drive us to act, our self-interest ought to drive us to act. Because this isn't just a threat that is, that's faced all over the world. This is a threat that we see within our own borders, as I talk about pretty clearly in the book. This is something we have to pay very, very, very close attention to. And the Bible says it, by the way, over and over and over that we have to take care of these people. You know, Proverbs chapter 24 says, rescue those who are being led to the slaughter. What could be any more clear than that? Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards the slaughter. Those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, when I talk about this, everybody asks me, okay, Johnny, I get it. It's a crisis. Well, what can I do about it? So let me just tell you what you can do, okay? So write fast. Number one, understand this is an urgent moment. It's an urgent moment. This isn't a time where we have our once in 52 week a year persecuted church Sunday, okay? This isn't the time where once in 52 weeks a year we start praying for the persecuted church. This is the time where every single day we're pleading for these people like we hope someone would be praying for us. This is an urgent moment. Everything you do, whether it's humanitarian assistance, whether it's putting pressure on government leaders, which works, by the way. That's why Sister Diana was in Congress last week, because people raised their voice. Thousands of Americans, Democrats and Republicans, raised their voice in America because this was a sensible thing to do. It matters. Like, this is an urgent moment, and we have to, we have to respond with urgency. Every single day we have to do so. Do so. Number two, we have, to, we have to raise awareness with intensity. We have to educate ourselves, and we have to raise awareness. That's what's so amazing about what Liquid Church is doing this week and last week. Educating you, that's why I wrote Defying ISIS, so that you can raise your voice. See, this is the 21st century. You know, ISIS is not Al-Qaeda. You know, Al-Qaeda launched plots that were very, very complicated. They took 10 years to plan. They involved sneaking people into the United States of America, you know, being trained to fly an airplane, fly the airplane into, into the World Trade Center towers. It was a very complicated and intricate plan. That's not ISIS. ISIS is the most well-funded, most technologically astute, most diverse. It's a whole different ballgame, right? And they use social media really well. And as Christians, we can use social media to show how love kills hate, to show that the best of faith defeats the worst of religion. Like, we need to be raising awareness for our Christian brothers and sisters. And you don't have to get into all the anti-ISIS stuff. You don't have to leave that all away. Just say, I'm giving to this organization to support displaced Christians uh, in the Middle East. Like, like, raise your voice. Evil men do what they do because good men do nothing. It's like the Archbishop of Washington, D.C. I'm not, I'm not Catholic. But Catholics are really in harm's way, and so I've gotten to know a lot of them. But the, the Archbishop of Washington, D.C., Cardinal Donna Wuerl, at the beginning of, of the Catholic University of America's opening service this year, at the very end of that service, sorry, he took the podium, and at the end of that service in September, he said some really profound words, which I think shocked everybody, because you know, Cardinal Wuerl is a very sort of meek person. He's not weak at all. He's a very strong person, but a very soft-spoken person. And he took the podium, and when he took the podium, he implored the people in the audience to stand up for their brothers and sisters in Christ that are in harm's way, that are facing the threat of eradication. He said, are we going to stand by while 2,000 years of Christianity is eliminated from the Middle East? Are we going to have blood on our hands for keeping silent? And then he said, in the most somber way at the very, very end of his remarks, he said, atrocities happen because there are those willing to commit them and those willing to remain silent. Raise your voice. Number three, be blunt 
call it what it is. Just call it what it is. It is an attempt at genocide against Christians and others in the Middle East. That's what it is. Call it what it is. It's uncomfortable. Nobody wants to be taught. You think I want to be talking about this? Nobody wants to be talking about this. But it's the reality of our time. Next, we have to affirm genuine Islamic voices. The fact is ISIS represents a very, very fraction, small, small fraction of, of a religion of a billion people on planet Earth. You know, I, I, ISIS was excommunicated by Al-Qaeda because of their extreme Islamic theology, okay? Which, you stop and think about that for a minute. Ten years ago, the worst thing we could imagine was Al-Qaeda. Now we have a terrorist group that was excommunicated by Al-Qaeda. But the reason why is because ISIS, ISIS will, will punish Muslims as apostates, right? So they're very, 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 very ex extreme. And there are lots of moderate Muslim voices around the world. That's why I've stopped calling them moderate voices. I just call them normal Muslims. This is the time for Christians and Muslims to stand together like never before to combat their common enemy. It doesn't mean that I'm going to become a Muslim. It doesn't mean I'm a pluralist. It doesn't mean I believe the Bible is any less true. It just means that this is the time for the best of faith to defeat the worst of religion. We have to stand together. We must move, like, interreligiously. You know, I've heard over and over from the Jewish community uh, in, in California. They say, like, what's wrong with you Christians? Like, if somebody were doing this to our community, we'd be raising our voices. We'd be sending airplanes. We, we, we had raised $2 billion. Like, like, we know where this goes. We've seen it. And trust me, it's not going to stop. And the fact is that every single day somewhere on planet Earth, there's a Jew or a Christian who is, who is being persecuted for their faith alone. They may not live till tomorrow. Every single moment of every single day in this world we're living in. And with two billion Christians on planet Earth, what is our problem? Why can't we get our act together? This is a once-in-a-thousand-year crisis. These communities that have survived the likes of Genghis Khan will be eradicated from the 21st century, our modern world. It's time to stand up. It's time to speak up. And finally, two other things. We must give to those organizations that are preserving society and rebuilding society. Like, the fact is, the bad guys still win if these Christians die for lack of food or shelter. And we have hundreds of thousands, millions of brothers and sisters in Christ that, that which shocked, by the way, one of the things that shocked me the most when I started meeting these people is they weren't poor people. They had two-story houses and kids in college and two cars. They were middle class, upper middle class people. They had lives, like our lives. That's what they had. And then just because of their faith alone, but because of this symbol, uh, this symbol I wear on my lapel, which is the symbol that ISIS put on the homes of Christians in Mosul before their, their sweeping eradication. You know, these people, who had, they had lives like we had. And now they're living in tents, starving to death. Some of them barely made it through winter in the harsh Iraqi winter. And this is the least we can do, right? You know, I, give, I give lots of money to world help. It's an organization I'm really committed to that's helped lots and lots of people. And I helped found something called the Cradle Fund, which is helping churches in Iraq and in Syria, Jordan and in Lebanon provide for Christians and others. They're being a light to the world. They're not discriminating against anyone. We give money to the local churches in the region because the local church is the only humanitarian organization left in some of these places. And we have to give. We have to give generously. 
like we hoped someone would give for us. If it was our family, if it was our home that was taken away, if it was our life that was being threatened. And then finally, we have to pray. And when I say pray, I mean like pray with all the intensity you can muster. I mean pray every single day. Now, Paul wrote a prayer in the first century that applies to the 21st century. He wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, Pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. That's what we have to pray. Pray for three things every single day for our brothers and sisters. Pray for protection and pray for perseverance. That's the first one. Pray that they have the ability to endure this crisis that they're going through. Number two, pray for protection. Pray that God would protect them, that they would be protected. Right now, there are 300 Christians that were kidnapped in February along the Kaaba River in Syria. We have no idea what's going on with these 300 Christians. I pray every single day, God, to protect those people, protect them. And number, number three, pray for provision. Pray that their needs would be provided from perseverance, for protection, for provision. Do it every single day for these people. Pray for them the way you hope someone would pray for you. I often think, what if I would have been alive during the Holocaust? Say I was living in Germany, and I immigrated later to the United States. And my kids came back from Western Civilization course, and they, they said, Dad, we, we learned about this awful thing called the Holocaust today. Didn't you live in Germany when that was happening? Like, what did you do about it? Wouldn't it be an awful question to be asked if you knew you could have done more? And I often think, like, one day when my children, I've, I have a baby and an infant. If they come back from Western civilization, I said, Dad, did you know there were all these Christians in the Middle East? They, they survived and thrived there for 2,000 years until the 21st century, and they were gone. Do you remember that? Did you do anything about it? I want to be proud to be their father in that moment. I want to have a good answer to that question. You know, when I, I landed in Iraq earlier, or late last year, all these tents, they were deplorable. The conditions were deplorable. But you could always tell a Christian refugee camp because they put crosses at the top of their tents. And they lined them in lights so that even in the night they can be seen. And there they were, still in Iraq. ISIS at that point was about 20 kilometers away. And it was that cross that nearly cost them their lives. And yet the one thing they wouldn't do was hide the fact that they loved that cross. So why are so few of us willing to live for what they're so willing to die for. Let's do everything in our power to help everyone we can as quickly as we can. Jesus, I pray that you show us what we can do, that we do as much of it as we can. In this very moment, we pray for perseverance, we pray for protection, we pray for provision for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And may our hands be clean and our conscience be pure.
when we're asked, where were we and what did we do? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Can we thank Johnny for his leadership? Thank you, Johnny. Grateful for you, my friend. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much. Well, as you can see, um, Johnny is a passionate leader. We're grateful for his voice in the persecuted church. Uh, today, a portion of our offering, in fact, is going to go to the Cradle Fund, specifically to provide relief supplies for those refugee Christians in Iraq, in Syria, that the Cradle Fund is working directly with to provide food, clothing, shelter. So know that your giving and generosity of Liquid Church, when we put that together, we're able to make a significant difference in thousands of lives. Um, today, Johnny's book, Defying ISIS, is available in the lobby, and you may want to pick up a copy of that, pick it up for somebody, or a Father's Day gift. It's a riveting read. It is heartbreaking, but you know, you probably watch the network news, and you only get bits and pieces. You get fragments. Th this will really help connect the dots and realize how you can be a voice for the voiceless. We have a lot to be thankful for. Uh, at Liquid, but we also have a lot to pray for. We want to be a church that, you know, acts locally, but really thinks globally. And so as I dismiss you now, let me do that with a benediction from Romans 15. Again, this is the letter that Paul wrote to persecuted Christians. And he said, may now the God who gives you peace and perseverance give you the same attitude towards each other as that of Christ Jesus, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God give strength to his people and bless them with peace. Amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.